This is Jamarla Martin, and you're listening to The Go Podcast. We don't care what the Silicon Valley establishment thinks. We don't care what corporate advertisers think. We will not be compromising the truth on this show. We're going hard as we talk to the leading tech leaders, influencers, and politicians. Let's go. Our first episode of The Go Podcast is with Brian Brackeen, the founder and CEO of Kairos. Brian, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, so good to be here. Thanks for having me, being the first person on the podcast is like a huge honor so really happy to be here so way way back i was born in uh, ohio actually um given up for adoption at about six months old to two really great parents in uh philadelphia pennsylvania so i moved to pennsylvania at about six months old and, and lived there almost all my life car carrying rabid philadelphia eagles fan so happy that we finally won our first super bowl um from there, I took a bunch of, my, my dad taught me how to code very early on, um, eight years old or so. So computers are just part of my DNA. Um, I took a, a bunch of jobs locally at, at IBM and Comcast, uh, but ultimately moved to Silicon Valley in San Francisco to work at Apple just after the iPhone launch. And, and I was there all the way through the iPad launch, a period of just kind of exponential growth. Learned a ton. Um, and at that stage, decided to get the startup bug start the company and I moved uh, a, a company called Kairos to Miami, Florida later. And we'll talk about that, I guess, in a bit. Do you think you had some advantages being raised by an Amish family where possibly that could have produced uh, a more contrarian perspective? Yeah. And, and what you're referring to is I had Amish foster parents before I ended up with my uh, adopted parents. Um, and so it's a mixture of kind of Amish roots and then also Pennsylvania Quakerism that is like a, th a thread that goes through all of really Pennsylvania society. I think absolutely. I think it was those things are huge. Our, my sense of community and tolerance and openness really come from those groups. What was your path to becoming a startup founder? My path to becoming a startup founder is probably a little different than most. I think I was a little older. Uh, than most. I'm 38 now. I think I started the company six years ago. So, you know, early 30s these days feels like it's late uh, for many startup founders. I had a, a long history in enterprise software, as, as I mentioned, working in really big companies. And so I was able to learn about the problem that enterprise companies were trying to solve and then build a company around solving them in a way that enterprise companies could digest. Many people think you need a degree and college debt to become successful. What is your advice to the younger generation as you didn't graduate from college? I get, yeah, I kind of hold the contrarian view. Um, it's even exponentially better, in my mind, as, as far as startup goes, you've got a better chance of succeeding if you're not burdened with debt. And so if you're gonna go to college, maybe on a free ride, maybe it makes sense. Um, but, but generally, people are, I think, learning ways to think that are, though important in life, may not serve them in startup, which is much more ambiguous, no one to tell you what to do, no right or wrong answers. You need this kind of, uh, I don't know, a compass, so to speak. Uh, and what I found is sometimes college doesn't help you hone that internal compass. You were able to raise over $7 million from investors to date. Why do you think you got that far where 99% of black founders uh, raising capital get so many no's and, and can't really get going? You got a yes, uh, more than a few yeses, but so many others uh, get no's, particularly black founders. How much of this uh, relates to your approach to raising capital versus your specific industry, product, and your, and your execution? 
yeah, there's so much of my life goes into the answer to that question. You know, I've had my share of no's, certainly, and all founders do of all races and all shades. But I, you know, you will find that uh, black founders get more than their fair share of no's, certainly. Yeah, I've pitched the company over a thousand times. I think we have about 120 or so people on the cap table. So basically, you know, 880 no's, right? Um, as I, but I, I certainly continued on. Why I've been successful is to be told no that many times to keep going. That's an important part. If you're not in the game, you can't win the game, right? So that's certainly key. But two, I, I don't assign the no's. I don't try to read into the no's. I try to take what I can from them when there is good information there. But when there's not, I completely ignore it, put it behind me, and move on to the next person. I also don't go into a conversation with an investor assuming no. So often I talk to founders of color who say, I'm not going to talk to this person. I'm not going to talk to that person because they're not going to invest in me because I'm black, which I think is it's crazy. Because again, if you don't show up for the game, you can't possibly win the game. Recently at Black Tech Week, I wasn't shocked, uh, but it was interesting that at least two black founders submitted questions to our panel saying, should they hire, proactively hire white team members to increase the probability of getting investment. How would you answer that question? Yeah, and there's sadly a precedent for that. You know, um, one of my mentors when I was in San Francisco and a brilliant man, Vivek Wadwa, talks openly about how he hired a polished white gentleman to be his front man for a company that he founded, started, thought up um, just so he could raise capital. Um, it's, it's a very, very painful situation. I think. Part of that is the realities in certain geographies, like a San Francisco. Um, we never did that, and I wouldn't do that, and I actually don't think you need to do that in other geographies that are outside of San Francisco or, or, or other places, um, even outside of the U.S. Um, but uh, sadly, in certain geographies, that, that still helps, though I wouldn't suggest someone does it. It just, to me, it just the value being added doesn't seem commensurate with the kind of equity you're, you're going to give up one and two it's just plain old wrong tell us about your core products now and what you're rolling out in the future so we we're a human uh, analytics company so what does that mean um we do facial recognition uh for companies we help companies understand either who someone is so this is they may have pictures or images of their customers and we can help them identify them later say in an airport, in a retail establishment, you name it, for people who've opted into to using our solution. But also we can tell them things about that person. So we can tell, just with a single picture, someone's age, gender, ethnicity, uh, even the emotions they're feeling in any given second. And so our customers use that in a variety of ways. We have polling companies that help us to better, we help them to better understand who someone's gonna vote for. Um, we have companies that are doing retail to understand the preferences of different ages and genders and ethnicities so you can better serve them. And then of course we have customers that uh, people, let's say you walk up to a kiosk and looking for all the photos of themselves from earlier in a trip. So you just walk up to the kiosk, facial recognition, all your photos show up. Or we have customers that are large media companies that need to know every single frame in their media that Tiger Woods is in, right? Uh, or Bradley Cooper is in. And so we help to index all their content. So facial recognition for business use. What type of companies are licensing your product right now? Oh, all kinds. I think we've, we have a real concentration in uh, the retail kind of online data space. Um, 
and the the polling and 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 audience insights is what we call it. So this is advertisers, polling companies, things like that. So Morgan Stanley invested in Kairos last year. Tell us how that came about and how they have been helpful. As you know, it's very rare for an organization like Morgan Stanley to invest in anything that's not like Uber Series E or something like that, right? So we were super excited to get an opportunity to have them and not just invest, but also mentor us. Um, Carla Harris uh, started a group in the, the Multicultural Innovation Lab that essentially takes in companies at different stages, mostly a little bit later, and then has a bespoke program for what you need. You know, what does Kairos need to be better? What does Kairos need to be bigger? How does Kairos think about putting the foundation in place now so they can IPO later? In our case, we ended up ICOing later. And so that knowledge beyond the money was, was extremely helpful. I hear a lot of great things about Carla Harris at Morgan Stanley. Explain the difference of her impact where you know she's a high-level executive with real influence at Morgan Stanley versus the chief diversity uh, officer at Facebook and the chief diversity officer uh, at Apple who was fired after uh, uh, making a, a coonish comment. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a fan in general of the chief diversity officers as a class even. Um, going back to my history, working at IBM, working in large corporations, one of the things I intuitively understand is how the business segments and verticals are lined up and how people at different positions in the company can really influence the direction and the decisions made in that company. Chief diversity officers most commonly sit outside of those silos. And the problem is they're always making a request of groups, asking them for something, asking them to to do something on their behalf, but never instructing. Um, that's that's one of the key differences. Number two, the people in these roles, too often, their output is a report, and they go to conferences, they hang out, they, they're, they're going to really great parties, they're giving talks. I so rarely, if ever, have seen real change coming out of chief diversity officers. Now, you contrast that with someone like Carla Harris, who's vice chairman of the firm, who's in a, in a clear and, and powerful vertical, who sits on the, the firm's management committee with the CEO and other senior executives. And so she literally and figuratively has a voice at the table and is helping to move Morgan Stanley in the direction that it should be moved in. There's a clear difference between that and a chief diversity officer who's just doing a report quarterly. The black women who were chief diversity officers at uh, Apple and Facebook, both of them came out saying they're all about cognitive diversity. You know, 10 or so white men, and it's still diverse. As you know, the word diversity has been promiscuously pimped out. I don't know what it means anymore. Do you feel that these black women came into the organization so bullish on the concept of cognitive diversity that that should be prioritized? Or do you think this is the script that's handed to them by Facebook, by Apple, and these women are just kind of, you know, the, the PR mouthpieces to push a cognitive diversity agenda? I don't think you've ever seen an echo chamber as powerful and as complete as the Silicon Valley's echo chamber. When you talk to people in the Valley, you could talk to 10 different people. It, does, it doesn't even matter because it's like the same thing over and over again. You use the same words in the same order. They see everything the same way. Part of that is a challenge of California in general in both North and South, right? But beyond that, she would have, the, 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 the woman, the chief diversity officer, the former chief diversity officer at, at Apple 
would have heard some of that messaging at some of these conferences they all go to to get all synced up in the valley and then would have parroted that messaging uh, over and over again. I don't really see any other any other way to see it because people don't use the terms like the, the, the kind of you know cognitive diversity and things anywhere else but Silicon yeah. Valley. You never hear that term in Detroit or New York or Miami or Atlanta. Diversity means diver- diversity, and to your point, it's kind of being co-opted. But you know, it, it is what it is. But in in San Francisco, because they 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 lack a commitment to real diversity, um, they they try to shroud it in these other words. In looking at the chief diversity officers at Apple and Facebook, it's kind of like uh, you know the, the the establishment says, "Hey, let's hire a black woman." You know, that checks the the gender box, checks the race box, uh, but you're really hearing the same stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And also, you know, you as, as you know, uh, Facebook or Google or, or, or some of the other uh, big tech firms, they will possibly bring in a McKinsey and Company. They'll bring in a Boston Consulting Group. They'll bring in a Bain. They'll bring in strategy consultants to help them kind of objectively look at a critical problem with an organization. They may spend millions of dollars on a particular strategy study. But why do you think Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Andreessen, Sheryl Sandberg... Why does the establishment think that they can fix diversity? Why wouldn't they outsource that? Where it, it can't be people from privilege being the experts and scientists on diversity. Why would they outsource some of their their business problems where they need objective advice? They'll spend millions of dollars. But they really have come out in the press saying that they, white folks, can fix diversity. Well, there's a, I think it's the Californian... Um, well, that's the, the Northern California mentality. Now, to California's credit, you know, if you go way back to the, the foundations of California and like the Fairchild Semiconductor, a bunch of folks going out there thinking differently, thinking bigger and affecting real change in the world. They've been able to affect that kind of change, societal change themselves in that in that part of the world. That said, they're now dealing with the next generation. Right. And people have adopted those principles of openness and tolerance and thoughtfulness and democratize them across the world. And therefore it's, it's going to be very, very difficult for them in only staying there, only thinking about that area, only their whole world being in that part of the world to, to solve a problem for the rest of us. And I don't think that they see that. I think that they've always been able to think big and solve problems in, in Silicon Valley. And they don't realize that it's they're unlikely to solve them kind of maybe going forward in the same ways. If the Silicon Valley establishment was to give up and say, hey, we are part of the problem. We're the ones investing in, you know, exacerbating the problem. So we're not in the best position to fix it. We come from privilege. We're in a bubble. We're not the really the people who are going to solve this big problem. What if, if Silicon Valley was to organize and outsource the problem to, let's say, the descendants of former slaves or or, or a particular group? What could an outsourced uh, solution look like for Silicon Valley? There's a lot of challenges in the premise. <laughs> so the, what, the first piece of the premise is that in many cases, at least in the world of tech, with what we're talking about, right, they are the both the beginning and the end of the problem. In some scenarios, the problem doesn't even exist at the same level outside of that that area, right? So they are they are living the issue. 
they are literally the issue. So it's kind of like, so how can someone outsource themselves is almost kind of like how I, how I see that. But going a little deeper in, within the premise of the question as asked, there are people of all races like Mitch Kapoor from Kapoor Capital is doing an amazing job. He is in the Valley. He's in Oakland by, by design, um, a New Yorker by birth and still has the accent. <laughs> and though he made a lot of his money in San Francisco and lived there for, you know, for decades, I do think that he is a clear example of someone solving the problem and bringing in other folks of other races and colors to join uh, his team and join forces and investing in those people as well with actual dollars to help them to solve the problems in their communities. I feel like that's a great model that could be followed by the rest of Silicon Valley. We hear a lot of people talk about diversity and inclusion problems in Silicon Valley, particularly black people, but they won't call out any names. A lot of the people that I know and I see out there, you know, they're very passionate about the problem of diversity and inclusion, but you won't hear anybody call out names uh, such as Ben Horowitz, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Andreessen, Michael Moritz, Sheryl Sandberg, John Doerr. How could the problem be so big and how could the discriminatory practices be so pervasive, but the people cannot attach the culture to specific names and institutions. They won't call them out. Why is there a disconnect where diversity and inclusion, that problem, that boogeyman, there's no faces, there's no accountability. Yeah, I think for me, and this is where you get into kind of like just personal beliefs versus, you know, I could say any of these things as a fact. Given that I know some of the people on that list, I would say they, they here's one of the challenges. Oftentimes, there are kind of deep institutional reasons for this problem. So for instance, we talked about the echo chamber of Silicon Valley, particularly Silicon Valley venture capital, right? They all have the same rules. They all say the same things. One of the common phrases is, we don't just take applications for investment. We don't open our website up like that. We really like when someone is known in our network and, they, and our network makes a, a warm introduction. Not a service provider like a lawyer or something like that, but someone like a real kind of other VC or friend of mine. Now, inherent in that is a Sand Hill Road venture capitalist is unlikely to have many friends of color. Right? So because of that, their network, let's say, of the 200 people they know closely and the 1,000 people they know uh, just not as closely or 2,000 people, let's say in that group there may only be 20 people of color, 30 people of color tops. So inherent in that, if there's 2,000 people that can make an introduction to a venture capitalist, the number of people that are of color are so small that less introductions get made, plus they're in different, they have a geographic bias. They live in an area that has less and less and less people of color because of the price of, the, of living in, in Northern California. And if you're not living in Northern California, then I'm making those investments. So that person walks around every day thinking that they are completely colorblind and but they've created scenarios and rules about introductions that d disable their ability to meet entrepreneurs of color and then invest in them ultimately why do you think silicon valley has been allowed to run wild and run over pretty much everything without any regulatory scrutiny during the obama years because well, they've made a ton of money for a ton of people and that's kind of what happened. I think you're seeing that in the ICO market now as well. The government has been pretty hands-off uh, of that market because I think people are, are doing pretty well and they don't want to ruin the kind of wealth creation engine that ICOs create. That said, um, you know, Northern California has got to be one of the, 
the hotbeds for democratic fundraising. Um, and so they're also much more unlikely to create rules and regulations for that part of the world. Are you concerned about things such as Eric Holder leaving the DOJ and then getting kind of, you know, checks, big checks from Silicon Valley as a strategic advisor where we're just repeating the same kind of Wall Street backdoor lobbying where, you know, folks are going back and forth and there's a promiscuous amount of conflicts? Yeah, people are tired of the Washington game. I mean, this is why Donald Trump won the presidency. This is why Bernie Sanders did so well. Should have probably even done better. Right. I think across the board, people have a kind of blow it up mentality in their voting because they're tired of seeing people go on this kind of endless cycle. If you are a Republican, you'll probably go from D.C. to New York, Wall Street kind of cycle. If you're a Democrat, you'll go from kind of D.C. to San Francisco cycle to, to make your money. Um, it's an endless door. You know, one of the co-founders of Facebook, of course, is given credit as, as being one of the chief digital marketing architects of the Obama campaign in 2008. You know, a lot of Facebook folks left Facebook to go work for the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Some other folks left the Obama administration to go work for Facebook. Why does Obama get a pass? Why do, why are, why do people uh, believe through political loyalty or racial loyalty where? You know, you can have this incestuous relationship between corporate America and kind of corruption where obviously the money in these special interest groups undermines our democracy. But why do black people feel like Obama gets a pass? Meaning that the same stuff that he was attacking Wall Street for in terms of the money, the corruption, the need for regulation. That's like asking, why does Moses get a pass? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> for, they got his picture in the living room. What are you talking about? No. <laughs> no, but I think bigger than that, there is a, and, and this is true for all races, all groups. In certain candidates, whether this be Donald Trump for Republicans and Obama for Democrats, you see something larger and a larger ideal in and through the person. And this is more of a, a start with why kind of idea. This is like a, your core value kind of idea. And those core values often are not, you're not using facts or reasoning in, in coming to that conclusion. You have these kind of core set of beliefs and those two people, Donald Trump or Barack Obama, align well in your mind with that belief. And then therefore anything on top of that, outside of that core belief will simply be ignored. Why haven't university endowments and big state pension funds who give so much money to venture capitalists held accountable for the statistic of less than 1% of VC capital going to black founders? Roughly about 20, 30% of VC dollars, as you know, comes from uh, state pensions and endowments. Yeah, I think that would solve the whole problem. You know, we've talked about that in different venues as well. We need to hold the folks that are investing our money accountable to our standards. There is an entire process of removing kind of apartheid supporting funds. There's no reason we can't go back again and say, these are the expectations and we want our money invested in this way. Though I will say, I think that ICOs and other ways of funding are, are ways to kind of get out of that Silicon Valley trap and that Silicon Valley kind of rat race and, and open your offering up to the a larger group. Interesting. You mentioned uh, apartheid. Can you explain to our listeners, you know, some of the actions from activists in, in terms of protesting against endowments as it relates to apartheid? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a whole university course, but you know, I'll, I'll say in this context, there 
were a number of investments in the United States that were made in support of the, at at that time, kind of regime, let's call it, in South Africa, right? So buildings that they own, investments, real estate, you name it. Um, And there was a decision by many funds, uh, and including, there's also some, some congressional work on this topic, to remove the investments from anything that supported the folks that were supporting the South African uh, governments and, and economies, which led to, I think, put a huge role in the ultimately kind of you know, failure of the apartheid movement. Do you think that Silicon Valley is the modern day mecca of white supremacy? I don't think the Silicon Valley is the mecca of white supremacy. However, I do think there are pockets in this country from a, certainly from a Silicon Valley to a Dallas to a New York to a Washington, D.C., that have traditionally been on the wrong side of this issue. If you go back, even historically, again, as a proud Pennsylvanian, we outlawed slavery in 1780. Right? We were well before. And when we did so, there were a number of northern states that supported our, what at the time was called radical efforts at equality. Um, but the one that hardcore, staunch person in the Northeast that was not for these things was New York. New York has really always been focused on the dollar over the people. We see this problem kind of time and time again throughout history. Um, and I think when you, as you start to make more money, as you start to become part of the majority, and as you start to have a, live a comfortable life on the backs of others, you, you sometimes take this other position. And I, I think San Francisco might be the latest uh, indoctrination of, of that fact. If white supremacy is institutionalized, and, and, and when you think about how many people... Facebook and Google influence how much power uh, they have in the economy, how much power they have with government officials. What group of institutions right now are having more impact in terms of wealth distribution, discrimination, inequality? What group of institutions could compare to the aggregate forces out of Silicon Valley? specifically uh, relating to wealth inequality and white supremacy? Well, I think, I think decentralization is kind of the, the, the point there. If the patient is riddled with cancer, and that's a big if, by the way. I'm a, I'm a big believer in the America time and time again has come to the right conclusion. And this is just another, another kind of series where uh, you look at the, the late 1800s, kind of post-Civil War, the, the laws that were put on the books at that stage were so tolerant and so forward thinking. And then we went through a kind of a, a de- degradation of those laws by a, a pushback of white, white supremacists in the post late 1800s. And then a, then a regain of, of rights again in the, in the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Um, actually, just think of the whole 1960s in general. So I think that we're just in a, we're in the, a new cycle. And I do believe that the, kind of the goodness of the of America, as it always has, will continue to come through. But it does get harder, harder. So, one of the the new pressures that will allow us to kind of overcome this latest wave of tribalism, I think, is going to be the decentralization of power through the internet, through things like Twitter and mediums like that, but also through cryptocurrencies, uh, ICOs, basically allowing the kind of world to invest and back um, different different groups to their benefit. I think it's harsh, but you don't want to say it. You think what's harsh? 
I think uh, that Silicon Valley is the mecca of white supremacy. Oh, you can you can say, you can say that. A, <laughs> you can hold that yeah, belief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so LeBron James was recently criticized by Fox host Laura Ingram and was told to shut up and dribble. Yeah, hey, you know you're a black multimillionaire and you just need to shut up and dribble. She's so you know, you have no right to criticize a racist Donald Trump and his policies and his views because you're collecting uh, a lot of checks from the NBA. Describe the climate in corporate America with black people. How many black people in corporate America are shutting up and dribbling where essentially there's so much economic insecurity where we're so far down the ladder that buys more silence to maintain the current system. So in aggregate, because our community is so economically insecure, hey, LeBron James doesn't have to shut up and dribble, but most of y'all people out there are (laughs) shutting up and dribbling. At least a lot of the corporate people that I've met over the last 10 years, they are shutting up and dribbling times 10. Mm. They don't want, you know, I'm not going to go too far and blame them. Like, hey, you know, I need to eat. I need to feed my family. Mm But I feel like corporate America is buying a lot of silence from black professionals at scale because of the economic inequality that they helped create. Hmm. Speak to that. Yeah, as somebody who's either worked at or consulted a ton of companies, I think of this a lot like you think of the NFL. And so NFL is one organization, but it's really kind of 30 organizations, 32 organizations, 32 companies essentially in this scenario. And you've got guys like uh, the Dallas Cowboys and their owner, or Robert Kraft, right? And for the New England Patriots, and they're telling their folks, "Shut up and dribble," right? And this is this is my way or the highway. We're not going to do anything. Then you have other people like the Eagles owner. I just happen to be an Eagles fan, but we are on the record as being more tolerant, right? Being supportive of Malcolm Jenkins and his stand, uh, being supportive of working with, between the Eagles players and the court system to eliminate the unfair incarceration and high bail rates amongst African-Americans or amongst certain communities in, in, you know, of color in Philadelphia. So I don't want to paint corporations with as broad a brush. It, it's unfair to them and unfair to companies like Kairos. But what I will say is there is a class of CEO, corporate CEO, which are telling their employees, I don't want any part of that. There will be no talk of this. But there are others, and I got to say, Apple was a pre- was decently tolerant in this area. They allowed us to kind of organize and have groups and have meetups, and in a place that generally would, will not allow outside conversation, this is a topic that we would allow outside conversation. So I think it just really depends on the organization, and I think that we need to hold up the ones that are doing a good job, and we need to really you know, face some scorn to the ones that are doing a bad job. Why haven't we heard anything from a guy like David Drummond? You know, he was at Google uh, in the very early stages. He's super successful, super wealthy, but is he shutting up and dribbling? You know, I met David once in my time in San Francisco, and I know of him and of his work decently well. And I don't know him well enough to say if he's shutting up and dribbling. But I will say just from, like, my own, like, you know, your compass when you meet somebody... I got the sense that he really deeply cared and, and wanted to help. Is he out there instructing Google Ventures to make black investments? No. Should he? Maybe yes, right? Um, uh, but I don't, again, I don't know his story well enough to, to say um, whether he's shutting up and dribbling. Let's move to 
the NFL. You're a really big Eagles fan, but let's throw in. Wait, I'm a really big world champion, Super Bowl champion, world champion Eagles fan. That's I right. Make sure you, you know that, that that's you right. Clear that up. Congratulations on that. <laughs> uh, shout out to uh, all the people in Philly. That was a good. I days. was rooting for Philly, by the way. Excellent. Give the listeners an example of how blockchain can disrupt a cartel, a centralized cartel like the NFL. Uh, where, you know, participants, fans, players, there could be kind of a, a better value distribution versus, you know, all, you know, there's a few owners, billionaires generating most of the value and the profits. Can you give us an example of how blockchain could possibly disrupt the NFL? Yeah, one of the best examples of this, I think, is the Green Bay Packers. In fact, it's the only example of this. The Green Bay Packers are the only NFL team that are owned publicly. They're owned by the town of Green Bay, and the people of the town are many of them are shareholders in the in the organization. They public they publish their books. They're completely transparent because uh, they're forced to as a as a kind of public agency. When you look at the Green Bay Packers and the way they're run and the level of uh, honor, respect, and kind of history and success that they've had. By being more transparent, by being publicly owned, um, I think it really is a model. And when you look at again, you know, someone like the the, the Patriots who uh, have been known to cheat in the past, or the Dallas Cowboys who have been known to employ all kinds of people with all kinds of you know really serious criminal backgrounds and, and done some horrible things. I think when you see close ownership um, and secretive um, financial interests, don't breed best practice. And I think blockchain could be a way of opening things up and making the NFL more successful. I know that one day when I buy the Philadelphia Eagles, and I will definitely buy the Philadelphia Eagles, I will do so and I will probably be crowdsourcing and crowdfunding that, that, that effort and I will be returning it to the people. Probability percentage that in the next 15 years, we will see competition with the NFL where the athletes and the fans share in the equity value and the profit value of the teams and they own a stake and they rise together versus you know kind of a, a centralized cartel i think i think the, the nfl will be internally disrupted as opposed to externally disrupted for the same reasons that the nfl has been people have tried to externally disrupt the nfl forever one of the things that makes it extremely difficult going back to your points about dc is they have a number of laws that support their existence and they have a number of except ex exemptions that support their existence and allow them to, to run a what would otherwise be an illegal monopoly legally so it's very difficult to start something new without those same exemptions and win especially when you have a statutory issue on top of that but i do think that it can be disrupted internally by taking more of the you know the green bay packer kind of blockchain approach if you had to explain bitcoin in crypto to my old grandma in <laughs> Watts, California. Yeah. How would you how would you explain it to her? I often say this. Um, let's say your grandmother is an, a master crochet person, right? And I would say what's her name? What's your grandma's name? Joyce. Joyce. I would say, Joyce, imagine you made your ten best quilts of all time. Ten best. And yeah, the, the string that you use to make those 10 quilts, it's, the yarn is probably only worth, let's just say, a couple hundred dollars. But then it's seen by 
a few people. Beyonce decides she wants to buy one. She puts a picture of one on Instagram. It goes crazy. Everyone's got to have one of your 10. So now this thing that you essentially made, these 10 that you made for $200 and your heart's you know, labor is now worth tens of millions of dollars each, right? That's essentially what crypto is. You're creating something, these tokens, that, that initially didn't have intrinsic value, but the market and the people have decided that this thing has this value. And that value sometimes goes up and down, but oftentimes it's going up in a way that people can make money on the secondary markets and, and reselling it over and over and over again. So Joyce's quilt ends up being worth, you know, $100 million. You're one of the pioneers uh, in tokenizing your securities in an SEC compliant way. Yes. You're doing things a lot different than 99% of the shit coins or altcoins that are out there. Some of the ICO stuff that's out there. Yep. Where you're going in another uh, cleaner direction. Can you? Does Joyce know you talk like that? Shit coin. Yeah. So, you know, explain to our listeners, uh, particularly startup founders, yeah. how, hey, that Silicon Valley door has passed. Not just for black people, but it's passed for most people. Yeah. That, that's per a, a lot of that money is, is done. Yeah, uh, that's that's for everybody. Uh, you're not going to hear a lot of people raising a lot of money in Silicon Valley. Uh, the hot spaces, crypto, blockchain related uh, investments. Uh, what are the opportunities that are out there for black founders who, hey, I only know the startup world, you know, raising a seed, uh, you know, uh, get the pitch deck and, you know, find some institutional investors. Uh you know, go to Silicon Valley and pitch to all the, the institutions. Uh, try to find introductions. Um, can you point the audience to another direction? There's an alternative to that that's developing where it's more decent, uh, decentralized and more democratic. Yeah, we're, we're excited to be going down this path. And I've been giving talks on this topic and, and showing people how to do it. And essentially, and you, you, you alluded to it in your question, Oftentimes you read about crypto and these kind of crazy people making a bunch of money on, on, on white papers. You know, that, that time is definitely coming to a close. But what's being born out of that time is first you will raise money locally in whatever city you're in. You know, it could be Miami, Cleveland, uh, it could be uh, Wakanda. Doesn't matter, right? Then local investors and local people, friends and family will invest in your company so you can get it to a certain scale. You've got a few customers. You've got some product going. You've, you know, you've, you've got a deck worthy of, of creating. You've got a good story. And then at that stage, maybe two or three years in, you will then ICO. So investors will get their money investing back pretty soon, right? Only a couple of years in. Two, you'll have liquidity and the world, the people of the world will invest in your early stage company and get actual equity because you're going to tokenize the equity in your company. And so as your company does better or worse, those folks will be able to either stay in or sell their tokens to somebody else. It will operate in a similar to a, a public market, but it's a market specifically for accredited investors and investors that are allowed to invest in startups. How do you see 
Mueller's investigation playing out? When you run your scenarios, how does this, how does this thing end uh, and when? I actually changed my thesis on this this morning. Funny you should mention that. I used to, I, my answer would have been yesterday. I see it playing out not fast enough. Uh, but now I like where he's going, you know, for, for the listeners, it was just really um, this week or late last week, Friday, I think of last week, that he handed out 13 indictments for, for some of the, the people of, of the Russians, essentially, trying to impact our elections. And there's obviously more to come. Given the realities of the election, the next congressional election, the midterm election, there's an opportunity for Democrats to pick up enough seats to return the majority of the House to Democrats. And in doing so, you could have a, a traditional kind of impeachment process, um, unencumbered. Now, that's the bar, as we know from the Clinton years, is a lot lower in the House than it is in the Senate. But um, I think realistically, the Mueller investigation could come to a crescendo around the time of the midterm election and then allowing Democrats to start uh, impeachment proceedings. But that wouldn't be the end game, right? So he would likely be prosecuted in states. You know, I mean, where does Trump end up? I uh, gotcha. Where Trump ends up. That's a, yeah. So there's a whole constitutional question around Trump's ability to the executive branch, aka the FBI, of what of which Bob Mueller um, reports is under his complete and total control and purview, and he also theoretically could pardon. Maybe even himself, though that's a that's an open constitutional question. What is not, uh, which is possible, however, is certain states could bring actions. This is also unprecedented, but certain states could bring actions against Donald Trump personally, though maybe not as president, but personally, um, and then he could be convicted uh, in that regard. There is a uh, states do have that ability, and in this area. They report to their own state executives and not the not the federal government. There's another issue in the in the Constitution around the supremacy clause, which could which could cause issues with that scenario. Um, it would be a very interesting kind of legal question, but I do think that the, the one of the few ways Donald Trump would actually face any actual jail time would be through state enforcement. Though I think more likely would be um, uh, impeachment, resignation, and uh, and then pardoned by the next president. That was a lot there. Does he end up in jail? <laughs> uh, uh, probability percentage. Probability percentage he ends up in jail. Given the constitutional norms, uh, it is, it's improbable that he ends up in jail. What the issue is, and, I, and, I, and for the listeners, think about it this way. You have a state like Texas, which believes emphatically that Barack Obama has committed some crime against... Uh, it or the United States and they could have theoretically brought an action against Barack Obama during those years. We don't want to open the box where certain states get to decide New York or or Texas or California or Florida what they like or don't like about uh, the chief executive. Well, how would you stop New York? Who's going to stop New York uh, in terms of money laundering, you know, different crimes that uh, Mueller is working with uh, New York uh, the state of New York on sharing information, but who would stop New York? For sure, you know, democratic state, 
going after a Republican uh, president. But who, but who would stop it? This is the this is the constitutional challenge. New York is well within its rights to enforce its laws, and there's a there's a lot of case law around money laundering and things like that with Wall Street and the impact of the the, the New York Attorney General's might as well be like a god in New York, right? Because he can control or destroy any firm uh, in the state. Um, the, 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 the constitutional challenge is where that intersects with the executive and whether or not uh, a state, through, because of the supremacy clause, which says that federal law and, and, and the constitution is supreme over all of its states, um, whether or not that would provide an out um, it's reasonable to believe that it could, but it's also reasonable to believe that it may not. Yeah, my view is that uh, either he's going to jail. Yep. We have to be careful in underestimating what's going to be found. Yes. He's either going to go to jail. Yep. Or there's something that's going to happen, uh, a black swan event related to Donald Trump that most people have not forecasted. They have not thought about, meaning okay. that I feel like a lot of people are in the Nixon box where there's a uh, there's an organized kind of impeachment proceedings and this thing is going to go smooth. But I think Donald Trump has always been underestimated. Yes, for uh, sure. Consistently underestimated. And in my view, his psychological profile is very close to Hitler. Mm. Uh, if you... You know, when you when you study Hitler's psychological profile, uh, psychopath, uh, that Donald Trump's psychology, the way he thinks, I think is similar to Hitler. Uh, maybe a, a, a dumber or dumb Hitler. But I think people are underestimating what is possible in terms of how this plays out. So you think he would kill himself? No. The, so that, that that's a, a logical response. It could be a, a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. There could be agitation in, in terms of think about what Bill Clinton uh, did. Many people believe that uh, he sent missiles to the Sudan, mm -hmm. made up some stuff about some pharmaceutical factories. Experts later came in and said innocent people were killed during the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal. Bill Clinton just decided, many people believe, to distract from a possible loss of his presidency. Hey, I'm going to go send some missiles and make up something an intelligence report on some factories in the Sudan. Yep. So if Bill Clinton is capable of defending his presidency by sending missiles to Africa yeah. and killing civilians, what type of delta is between the mind and the morality and the ethics of a Bill Clinton and a Donald Trump? I believe that this thing could, could end a lot worse than a lot of people think just because of Donald Trump's psychological profile. You know, the consensus is that this is going to play out in an organized way and everything is going to work. But I see some scenarios where it's not going to play out uh, that way. Yeah. Uh, how crazy does it sound that there's a possibility that Donald Trump lands Air Force One in Moscow? It's not, nothing's crazy for Donald <laughs> Trump. <laughs> nothing's crazy. Pro probability percentage, if, if it's looking like jail, if it's looking like, hey, I'm going to die in jail. Do you think Donald Trump is capable of landing Air Force One in Moscow? As you know, other spies for Russia, American spies for Russia, British spies, uh, Russian spies who were planted in uh, Britain. In terms of Britain's spies, mm -hmm. they are gathering intelligence for Russia. Mm -hmm. They get information that the, the intelligence services in the UK are onto them. Mm -hmm. 
they go live the rest of their life in Moscow. Yeah. So they escape capture. Yeah. So we have precedents of spies and agents. If they know kind of what's coming, hey, I'm going to go to my sponsor and live out the rest of my life. Donald Trump is facing, hey, I'm going to die in jail. There's so much evidence out there that I'm just going to land Air Force One and take my chances in Moscow with my sponsor. The figurative Air Force One or the literal Air Force One? The literal Air Force One. So it's a complicated topic. Now, this is all theory, right? But here's how I would see that playing out based on the, the, everything that you laid out in the question. Challenge for Donald Trump is that he actually is president of the United States and that his movements and, and actions are being instructed by him but governed by the government. And so why well, I say that to say the people that would be flying that plane, driving him to the plane, taking him there, you name it, would have have an oath first to the Constitution, which by wit of which enables him to have the power to instruct them with what to do. So if he truly was guilty of treason, if he left before the court case, I think you could he could probably land Air Force One in Russia, get out, never come back. If there's a if the judicial branch instructs him to stay in the US until the end of whatever proceedings, or or even the legislative branch, right? There he may not have the support from the people in the White House to get himself out at least on an Air Force One scenario. Can Black Panther be revolutionary while having ghetto pawn shop economics in terms of an exploitive wealth distribution? In terms, a, in, in, let me, let me, yeah, let me yeah. elaborate a little bit for you. <laughs> what a ghetto so, pawn shop economics. So, so, you know, nothing new. NFL, you know, athletes, NBA athletes, yes. uh, you know, NCAA athletes, they support these billion-dollar institutions. Yes. Everything is based on their talent. Yes. Right? So the whole business collapses without the athletes. Yeah. But the disproportionate amount of the value, not the revenue, but the equity value of these enterprises and how the equity value is built up in these enterprises, it doesn't go to the athletes, the fans who support. Uh, it goes to these institutions, white institutions. In this case, Disney and Marvel. Mm. So essentially you have Ryan Coogler and you have the genius of the the script writers and the director, but they're not equity holders in the in the organization, right? So this movie goes on, let's say maybe it generates a billion dollars of movie tickets, merchandising, you know, overpriced popcorn. Uh, overpriced Coca-Cola, uh, you know, so this movie generates a billion dollars, but it's so consistent with the same slave master, slave dynamic where the slave works and there's a disproportionate value distribution where a lot of people give the value, but only a few people take it. And then they re they re they will reinvest in making sure you stay in that position. So the question is, with a lot of people talking about Black Panther is so revolutionary, can it be revolutionary with those type of economics behind it? No one in the world is, is better able to weave multiple bombs into a question than you. I don't know how you do it. I don't know where you learn that skill, but man. 
There's just there's so much to unpack, boy, in the, in the premise. So, okay. So I, I disagree with multiple points in the premise. But, you know, having said that, I, I actually do believe the NFL, one, I don't absolve people of their own responsibility to get the money they need to get in capitalism. So I don't absolve NFL players from their responsibility to make sure that the NFL union gets every dollar they're due from the NFL owners. And if they're not doing so, and they have a union, then they have, the union has failed them, right? So Yeah, but I'm not... Well, I'll, I'll go ahead. I'm gonna, and then I'm going to... I'll, I'll then kind of relay that to the, to the filmmakers. I don't know for a fact that... And it is quite common in, in, Walsh, in, in, in uh, L.A. to actually take part of the gross of the film. But usually, you see that amongst you know, long time kind of white directors and that, that kind of thing. So if that wasn't the deal that Ryan and crew struck with Marvel, Disney, you name it, they have a responsibility to get all the, you know, all they can get. That said, I also think that in this world that we live in where people have been treated fairly historically, it is a, it is Disney's also Disney's responsibility also as a public institution with all of our money in it to make sure that it's fair um, to the cast and crew and the directors of the film, I'll liken this to a situation we had here at Kairos. One of our coders, in fact, she was just promoted recently to, to a lead engineer. Um, and she wouldn't mind me telling this story. She's amazing. She's one of our best, period. And that's why she's, she's the lead and, and, and she now manages her peers. When at, the, at the point of her joining Kairos, um, I asked, I said, we're going to give you an offer. What is your salary expectation? And her salary expectation was about 20, 30, even 35% lower than her male peer. Now, one, she has a responsibility to ask me for every dollar she thinks she's due. That's her responsibility. But two, me in the Disney position said to her, look, I appreciate the offer and trust me, it's in my best interest to take that lower amount, but your value is greater than that. And I'm going to pay you this because this is par to what you are owed to the other folks in the organization. So both people have a responsibility, but let's not absolve you know, her or Ryan for his responsibility to get the money he deserves. And it also Disney's responsibility as well. Okay, but is the film revolutionary? <laughs> The film is... Would you use that type of word to describe... That's a big word. A, com a comic film. That's a big word. I don't know if I would use the revolutionary. What I would say is revolutionary about the film, which is a different way of saying it, is there are characters, and there are particularly women, in that I've never seen before in a film in, in my 38 years, right? So it's good and it's revolutionary to see certain characters of certain ages, genders, and ethnicities in that role being strong and amazing. And I think sadly that is revolutionary, but is the film revolutionary? Probably right, not, but it's an excellent film. Here's my two cents. Yes. What Marcus Garvey was doing is revolutionary. <laughs> yes. What Malcolm Max was talking about was revolutionary. Yes. If the younger people start using revolution for Marvel comic films. Okay, I agree with that. Uh, you are going to end up with a word like diversity, where just <laughs> everybody just uses the word. It has no meaning. Yes. 
So when the community uses a, a word like revolutionary, don't give that word up so so easily, uh, particularly when all the profits of the film are not are going to people who do not look like you. Uh, they're going to people most likely who hate you. And the money is actually going to go into investments for future generations that are most likely going to exploit and oppress you. So it's great to have this film. We've got a black director. Uh, we have uh, very good symbolism. Uh, it's inspirational. Hey, Black Panther is a start. This may be this may really inspire kids. It may inspire the kids at scale as much as a lot of the the hype that's out there. That's a that's a a possibility. Yeah. But let's not get it twisted here. And and we need to take Black Panther for what it is and we can't set the bar low for what revolution means uh for us. Uh revolution is not you know, Disney making a billion dollars with black actors, black directors, black genius. Even if you were to own the studio, if the community owned the studio, that's still not revolution. That's great, not, but that's still not revolution. We just have to be careful, I think, how we use that word. It's not revolution by the standards that you laid out. Absolutely not. Like, it's yeah. not Garvey and it's not, you know, no. you know revolution. I, I will say, and, and you, you lay this out in your points. I do hope that it, it's the fruit that comes from this tree that leads to much greater um, access and much greater opportunities for these groups. When you've made somebody a billion dollars, and even if you take away 10% of that, you can do a lot of great change with it. And so that's my, my hope is that we get a revolution downstream from what's been a very good film. Okay, uh, final question for you. You are considered uh, by many to be the foremost leader in building a black tech ecosystem in Miami. What inspired you to go beyond being a conventional startup founder and merge social impact with your business ambition? It goes all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, which is the sense of community and tolerance and making where you live better are all tenets of uh, kind of Pennsylvania, Quaker, and Amish culture. And I'm a firm believer in that. Also, my grandfather was a Baptist minister, so we we're always about community. Never for the handout, I actually hold some, some decently conservative views, but I'm, I'm always for helping people to get the, the fair shake and the hand up they need to be not just average, but wildly successful. And Miami is a place where people can do that. And uh, I'm really, really happy to be here. Okay. Thanks, Brian, for coming on the Go Podcast. We really appreciate your support and uh, coming on. Good to be here. Thanks, guys. If you like this podcast, be sure to check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Uh, also, you can check out moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Let's go.